Today's episode of the Film Stage Classic is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. My funny valentine, sweet comic valentine. You make me smile with my heart. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another classic review from your friends here at the Film Stage Show. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. Hello. And a special guest to help us talk about games funny and not so much. It's Dominic Suzanne Mayer. Hi, thank you guys for having me out. Glad I could make it. Absolutely thrilled to have you. Did I fuck up your name? You did not, and All I right. really appreciate it. <laughs> the, the general hit rate's not amazing. I uh, I feel like having cleared that hurdle, the rest of this show is going to be super easy. So, looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, this here is a classic episode, so as people at home who've listened before may know, we spoil everything... There is no spoiler section, so if you are interested in either of the funny games that have been brought to you by Michael Haneke, you gotta you gotta cash out now, or you just gotta expect that we're gonna spoil it. In addition wait, to that, wait, where's Denzel Washington? I, I was <laughs> told Denzel Washington was gonna be here. I was gonna say <laughs> we um when we do these classic episodes, often we try to have a peg. You know, we did. <laughs> We did It's a Wonderful Life around Christmas. We did Stalker because there was a restoration and like it had been on uh, Filmstruck and stuff. And like then for whatever reason, we went on our weird kick of Denzel Washington movies. And I think the peg for that was everybody loves Denzel Washington. (laughs) I would say the peg for funny games is we were looking at Us, the film by Jordan Peele that was coming up on the schedule. We were like, hey, we should do a classic review that somehow ties into us. And, you know, clearly we'll talk about it. But Funny Games is a movie that definitely pegs perfectly to us. So in honor of us out in theaters now, we are going to be giving you our review of Funny Games. Um, There's the original version, 1997. And then there's the American remake, 2007. Talking about one is pretty much plot and construction-wise talking about the other. Um, There may be moments where we talk about performances and, like, little tweaks that we see. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's just, just, you could almost, like, figure that this is both of them. (laughs) Especially since they're literally by the same director. And we will talk about it really, really closely tied together in terms of aesthetics and plot and script and just about everything else. But before we get into that, the usual nonsense, find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show, email us, podcast, filmstage.com, and of course, give us a comment and rating on iTunes. Go to patreon.com slash Show to become a patron. These classic reviews are brought to you by our generous patrons. For as little as $1 an episode, you can join them and us in our super secret Slack channel, and you will also get first crack at the raffles that are done at filmstage.com. And so, again, patreon.com slash show. In addition, we are brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. 
where every day their gregarious curators bring you a brand new film for you to enjoy. Those films persist for 30 days before cycling out, so you constantly have your rotating selection of 30 films to watch. As we said the last time we were in your ears, they are having their Adieu Agnes Varda series. So if you heard about the passing of Agnes Varda and said to yourself, my God, I always meant to catch up on her films. You have some choices on there now. There's The Beaches of Agnes and Jaco Denantis, which is a name that I am still not confident I am pronouncing correctly. <laughs> In addition, their exclusive partnership with uh, BYNWR, and NWR stands for Nicholas Winning Refn, has a brand new crazy ass sounding exploitation film out. This is called She-Man, colon, A Story of Fixation, a United States film by Bob Clark from 1967. So if you want to check out these and all the other great films that are on movie right now, go to mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial. And that is it for the front matter. So now we can get into it. Funny Games, the 1997 original and 2007 remake by writer-director Michael Haneke. So, I want to start off. What are our general feelings on writer-director Michael Haneke? Tom, why don't we why don't we kick it off with you as our guest? What do you think of this guy? <laughs> you Just know, generally. I like the cut of his jib, all things considered. <laughs> um, no, I... It's very interesting because I've been... I would never characterize myself as a fan of his work, but I find myself, especially including tonight's topic, thinking about his movies more than a lot of movies that I like a lot more, if that makes any sense. I'm very interested in what he brings to film, even if I rarely seem to take any pleasure in digesting it. He's a little bit in that way, like the person who like cuts you off in traffic and almost makes you crash. Like, not your favorite driver, but you're going to be thinking about him a lot longer than the person who waved you in during a difficult merge. Oh, absolutely. Like, <laughs> I, I will think about him more forever. I just, it made me absolutely miserable. Yeah. For yeah, instance. <laughs> Michael Snydell, what about yourself? You know, I'll admit that Hanukkah is, uh, he's a pretty big blind spot for me. Oh in the God. sense that the only other film I've seen from him is actually Cachet which I, uh, I like a lot. I, and I perhaps, I, I perhaps like it uh, more so than <laughs> Funny Games because it feels less like a troll job and more like it has a, a, uh, a real engagement and interest in you know, uh, surveillance and w what it means to live in a world where people are always watching you. Um, but Hanukkah as a whole, you know, I think, you know, he's one of the he's he's one of our elder statesmen at this point. Like as far as our European directors, like you can't really underestimate him at this point because he's just such a such a monument. So even if I don't think about again, even if I don't think about him that much, I mean, he's someone who looms large as an, as an influence over a lot of different genres. Yeah. I, um, I want to say that funny games is the first movie I ever saw by him. And I think it was because I was going through my like junior senior year of high school. Oh my God. I'm into films now situation. <laughs> 
And so you start like looking up films that are going to challenge yourself. So you're like Seven Samurai, over three hours, Japanese, black and white. I'm in it. And then you kind of you start looking around at other stuff. <laughs> I don't think I saw funny games until freshman year of of college. And I, I it's one of those ones that I'd always been drawn to, but I'd never been able to find. And then in college, I got my first net Netflix subscription. <laughs> so I was able to send away for those sweet, sweet standard definition DVDs that I had to wait three days for. And and it was during that time that I like the um what are they called? The the torture porn movies were sort of coming out. Sure. And it was kind of pitched to me through all my reading and stuff, like, oh sure, like saw and stuff, but oh funny games, you gotta check that out. Because I was reading a bunch of blogs written by assholes and idiots. And so after I saw this movie for the first time, I started digging into everything, like Piano Teacher, Benny's Video Cachet, obviously. Um, I got to Code see Code Unknown is a big one too. I have isn't not it? seen Code Unknown. That is one of that's one of the few of his that I haven't seen. I I got to see a 35 millimeter projection of Time of the Wolf at AFI Silver because they were having a Michael Haneke retrospective because wow. they wanted to make no money for a week <laughs> and. And then, um, of course, you know the white ribbon, a more. I all I caught all those when they uh, when they came out. So I love him. I like. I really, I enjoy all of his stuff. I like that you sort of can't predict what he's gonna do to you. Um, and Funny Games is a a perfect primer for that. And this is a movie that I have ruined friendships with. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, so in that way. Let's uh let's dig into this movie full on. Um, Dom, you, you again. There are two versions of this movie. One of them was made specifically for American audiences, and you told us before we started recording that you watched them both back to back. <laughs> I did. Real bad idea, for the record. <laughs> what was that like? Um, deadening. I have to say, especially shot for shot, it does draw out the contrast contrast of the movie and i think there is something to be gained from it being made for american audiences but i'll kind of circle back around to questioning that point at some point i'm sure but there are interesting things that come out of staging it in english with hollywood stars but at the same time it's in the same business of abject punishment in both cases so generally, like if you had to give this movie a grade. <laughs> wow. Yeah, all right. I'm um, curious because it is like Hanukkah is one of those people where you watch it and you're like, I understand what you were doing. It was impressive. And now like the concept of grading its quality becomes very difficult to do. But I'm putting you on the spot. I want to hear it. Well, and it and it's weird because the gap between my appreciation of the craft and artistry and what I actually feel about it is not usually this wide. <laughs> so I'll put it this way. I, 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 I am in to some friends. I am kind of known for really hating this movie. And especially after getting a couple beers in like yelling about it at length, <laughs> because I am so torn between appreciating something that is as good at ratcheting up tension and really building a sense of absolutely hellish mood as this is. And a movie that is basically, 
I don't want to oversimplify our whole discussion topic here, but a masturbatory art house exercise and thumbing nose at art house audiences. So, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> power ranking, uh, like four out of 10. I don't know if I'm going to put a number on it, I guess there. <laughs> All right. Michael Snydell. Now, my Michael, did, had you seen either of these before we talked about it? I can't remember. Yeah. I, I thought I liked this movie. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> um, I, I gave this like a, like I was looking at my letterbox and I gave it like four stars back in, uh, I think it was three or four years ago now. Um, it was, it was an early movie I watched with my girlfriend. So that's, the, and she didn't break up with me after that. So, you know, we're, we're going to be together till the end, obviously. Um, and I, yeah, I rewatched it today and I was really bored. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't use the word bored. I, I try to stay away from boring because I think it's, it tells you nothing. <laughs> right. It's but quite like, a vapid it, criticism. It really is. It really is. But I, I can't stress enough how bored I was until this reached the first kill. And then I became interested in, in, in an academic way. But then I also became aware of how much I didn't give a shit about these characters. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I remembered really liking this thing. And uh, this time it was just it, it's just annoying, too, because I, I have to admit, like, you know, I've been thinking about this lately. You know, I was just I was just praising the Resident Evil series on our last <laughs> episode. And I, I can't help but think of there are so many horror films that I saw um, you know, I saw way too many Fearnet movies, for instance, during high school, and I thumbed my nose at a lot of them, thinking thinking that I was better than them or that they didn't, you know, know the game and weren't implicating the audience. And I, I guess the thing is, like, when I look at funny games, you know, the things that it that it believes or, or at, at least that I feel it's projecting about the horror genre and like gorehound movies and the certain like expectation of bloodshed is like those are kind of all inherent in horror in general like it's not really like they're getting one over on anyone else so it's less like that it's thumbing its nose at like art house audiences in the same way that dom was saying that bugs me then it's just thumbing its nose at general horror audiences and thinking that a lot of these torture porn films aren't as smart as they actually are. And maybe that's just age that I finally got rid of some stupid snobbish snobbishness about some type of, sub, you know, slashers and things like that. But I just, I really felt like a lot of the, the things that this film felt were, were, were deep started feeling very hollow. Um, and I know that's kind of the point but it's kind of the point for an hour and 48 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I was going to say it that the 10 minute single take of the family recovering from the execution of their son, it 
it drags on forever. And I understand it is completely by design, but it, it felt a lot like when I was watching like some of the Romanian new wave movies that I don't like, like police adjective came to mind at one point mm-hmm. where it is building and building and building and building and building to a crescendo and a payoff that is not even close to worth the time involved. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about long stretches of funny games in general, I guess, because I feel like there's a weird disconnect between, you know, the point it's trying to get at about the vapid savagery of on-screen violence as depicted, and then this weird reluctance it has to actually, you know, depict the violence beyond a point. Because, look, and and I want to preface this by saying I'm not asking you to show me the kid getting (laughs) shot in the face. Like, that's not what I'm trying to drive at here. But I do think that there is sort of a having your cake and eating it too aspect to the film in terms of in the same breath, you know, thumbing its nose at people who get off on violence while in the same breath introducing this very like deliberate protracted self-serving more intellectual but every bit as uncomfortable violence so i still like this movie (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry no no it's fine i'm i these these uh these classic episodes can sometimes be a love fest especially when we're talking about a denzel washington movie Brett, brett i just want to quickly i really want to hear what you love about this film but i i do want to say like i don't like this movie but i do think it's a classic like i i think it is something oh yeah i mean it has such influence it is yeah it there's no way that i could say it's not a classic even as i don't like it all right the impact and importance of this film cannot be overstated i was i was nervous watching it because i was like what if i don't like it and it's just three guys on this episode who are just like man fuck this movie this movie sucks but like god it was such an impact and like it's so it had so much to say and it really was a watershed moment for cinema but oh fuck you michael haneke um <laughs> luckily it's not that i don't know like i i there's something about his like i want to say juvenile but i feel like he was probably like in his 50s when he made this he's like his glee in torturing the audience and honestly part of it might just be like my nostalgia for all the times that I showed this to someone and it fucked up their day um there's just something about it like something about watching it and knowing what's coming and just especially because I you know I'm not living still in the shock of the first time I watched it just being really able to appreciate all the ways that he withholds certain things and then makes you sit with other things, you know, like the violence in this movie isn't the thing that gets you. It's the protracted lingering on the effect of the violence, both physically and psychologically. And it, it, I like, there's a part of me that still really, really enjoys that. And, and especially watching it this time, I was like, can you imagine reading this script and going every day to set and then just being like, all right, remember, your son just got shot in the face with a shotgun. <laughs> You're miserable and action. There's a lot of commitment to that. And the fact that they made it twice, <laughs> the fact that he did this and was like, this is so like what I want to do that I'm going to do it again in English 
because I feel like the Americans could really like, you know, stand with hearing this. And I know a most of them won't read the subtitle. <laughs> um, it's a, it's crazy. I don't know. Like I, and there's still a part of me that like, I watch this movie and I just like hate myself. I hate like the fact that I am doing this to this family but I think that that's like its power and and a movie that has that kind of power over me. I can't even say that I dislike it because it's just too good and too effective. And again, is especially now having lived with it for so long, it's it's like I I just have to ag- agree with it. I have to like admit to myself that i am going along with it because i want to see what it's going to do and then in that way it's sort of one yeah and i i it's very weird because i'll completely contradict my own earlier point here granted to agree with yours in a lot of ways it it is a movie i think about very very often despite as i said not really liking it at all it is something to which i refer back constantly i think about the rewind sequence all the all time the in context time. of other movies yeah <laughs> and i don't know i think there's there is I, I will agree there. There is certainly a raw power. And I mean, even me sitting here getting all grad schooly about how much I don't like it. I am in my own way worked over in the way that he's trying to provoke. So, you know, who won? I think we all know Michael Haneke won. Absolutely. <laughs> As he does in all things. I am. Um, one of my favorite stories is. Uh, so I. I watched a more. I think I got a screener for it because I watched it at home and I finished it and I was like, fuck, I just need to just not move for like the next three days. I need to live with this movie when all of a sudden a couple of people burst through the front door of the house that I'm living in and are like, Brian, come on, it's time to go. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, remember we're going to the dance club tonight. And I was like... <laughs> what and they're like put your fucking shoes on like it's time we've been we're like outside we're like ready to go and i was like okay and i put my shoes on and i went to this like 60s 70s songs that are like remixed with a techno backbeat and like flashing light dance party brian this already doesn't sound like your scene even on a day when you didn't watch it more (laughs) here's the thing i had i had been to this particular dance party it happened like once a month in dc it was called fatback it was great because like They'd play like Ain't No Mountain High Enough, but they'd like, you know, repeat it and put a little dance beat under it. So I could be like, I'm here for the Motown and then I can dance to it because it's simple enough that I can dance to it and I would get drunk. Um, But yeah, I sat there that entire night. I like found one of like the two chairs that were in this entire like dance club and I was just sitting there drinking, (laughs) watching all these people thinking we're all going to be old and die one day. And this girl came over to me and was like, you know what's wrong like is something wrong and i was like i saw i saw a movie today <laughs> and so yeah that's that's how michael haneke wins he uh he fucks up your whole life <laughs> one movie at a time um and that's a it's a similar thing to funny games like funny games is a movie that has lived in my brain and i didn't realize that until i watched it today and i was like yeah i remember all of this like i even mm-hmm. like the second time that the guy got the eggs and left mm-hmm. I was like, oh, right. This is the part where then he, he 
fucks up the eggs again and he claims the dog jumped on him yeah. and then he walks in and that's such a minute detail to remember but like i also remembered like as she was giving him the eggs the first time i'm like oh that's right he drops them and then she uses legitimately two towels to clean it up and puts them into the dog food bowl and like that's a level of recall that even for me, who is the person on this podcast who has to remember every detail because I work with two goldfish, is just unprecedented. He's, I don't know, man. Well, you know what's so weird, so weird about even speaking of recall, that there were definitely like gestures that you're referring to that I remembered. But for some reason, I had remembered their game making more sense. <laughs> So watching it this time and seeing them just gaslight these people repeatedly and like trying to parse out their logic from moment to moment was like a fascinating exercise in futility. Wait, when you like, say make more sense, like, did you believe that in this movie there was a time in which they could have won the family? <laughs> I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but I remembered the the ways that they twisted the words feeling more organic to what was actually happening not not that they were like positing like here's a new game to play which is which is a fascinating fascinating thing i didn't expect and i, I do have to say did add does add a certain strangeness and and i'm saying this because i'm thinking about you know we We've all kind of talked about the impact this makes in our psyche and how often we talk about this film, whether we love or hate it. And I think there's something really interesting about how both how tight it is and how uh, linear and fluid and um, just, uh, yeah, just totally put together it is. And yet when you're actually watching it, it is this odd it is this odd, like, rhetorical maze. Like, you know what's going to happen next, but there's still, there's still, like, a certain, like, effort that's required. Mm -hmm. do, I, do you guys know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm kind of yeah. talking through this as a, it's coming into my No, yeah, there's, brain. there is definite craft in making something that is this purposely frustrating from minute to minute. There is absolutely craft in that. And didactic, though, as well. But 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 not didactic in a sense that we usually associate with, like, laziness. <laughs> like, that's, that's what I think is pretty unusual. As you're saying, like, it's craft, but generally well, you don't see films that feel like they're hammering their point home uh, – so hard and that being their exact intention yeah it's hammering home the point in a way that is drawing your attention to that direct and specific fact hmm. which is when we say didactic you know it's a movie that seems to be doing that without an awareness of the fact that it's doing that and just pummeling over you pummeling you overhead with the message that isn't as simple to grasp as the film thinks it is that's not funny games because funny games is all about grabbing you by the back of your head, shoving you face first into it and keeping you there until you're aware of how long you've been there. It's funny that you say like it grabs you by the back of the neck and, and forces you into things like that, because there was a part of me when I was when I was a younger man, um, 
that I remember seeing this movie and thinking like, wow, this is like so intelligent. Like this is so smart the way he's doing everything. And now I see it and I'm like, there's, it's so fucking obvious. Like everything that he's doing, it's like, you don't have to be able to pick up on subtle clues in this movie to know what's going to happen. And like for me, especially, and I'm sure you all as well, because we talk about movies, it's like, you're seeing what he's doing and the ways he's subverting things. But like, it, it was one of those movies that like, as a, as a teenager, I saw it and was like, oh, like it's it's so cool that I have the like special knowledge of film necessary to decode what's happening here and yes. seeing the ways he's undermining everything. And so <laughs> it is like a a keystone movie in your development as like a film viewer. Because I think if you don't know those things on an academic level, then it just infuriates you the way that he is purposefully fucking you over. But if you understand them on an academic level, you can sort of take a twisted pleasure in it. And so it's almost like this is a, a movie that like helps usher you into like cinematic adulthood in that way. It like lets you know that you've reached a certain plane of understanding. Oh, yeah. I think one of the reasons Hanukkah is such a frustrating filmmaker is because he requires like undergraduate study before jumping in. <laughs> and... <laughs> And it's frustrating, but at the same time, like there is, especially when you're younger, I'll totally agree. There's a sense of reward in just being able to stay on his wavelength. It's one of the reasons that like some people like to um, try to undermine Christopher Nolan by saying like he makes dumb movies that make people feel smart because you're able to like see what he's doing and he, he lays out things perfectly. But like that's not an easy thing to do. And I think that in a lot of ways, Michael Haneke is like the the triple A version of that. It's a lot more metatextual than just like being able to follow a seemingly complicated plot. I I think of the time that I showed this uh, movie in college to a girl that I had been seeing. <laughs> and she had said, oh, I really love like, you know, horror movies and they're, they're really great. I, I love them. And I was like, oh, have you ever seen Funny Games? <laughs> and she was like, no. Uh, uh. And I was like, oh, you should watch Funny Games. She's like, well, will you watch it with me? And I'm one of the, the assholes in college who like a girl would ask if I wanted to watch a movie with her and I would watch the goddamn movie. Like I never picked up on the signals. And so <laughs> we're watching it. She's kind of she's into it, even though it's, it is, as we've said, moving slower than usual. And, you know, it doesn't have like the stylization that you expect from like a thriller. It doesn't seem like it wants you to be having any fun. Unlike, you know, Friday the 13th or Saw where it's like, yeah, this is terrible, but it's cool. Right. And then the first time, the first goddamn time that Paul turns and winks at the camera, she literally <laughs> screamed <laughs> like it was a jump scare. And she didn't understand what had just happened. And then That's when he amazing. spoke to the camera and was like, oh, you're you're on their side, right? She was like, why is he talking to me? Like, <laughs> she really didn't like it. And then the remote scene happened and she started punching me. <laughs> and she was furious with me and she was furious with the film and she was furious with herself. And I... Like, because when I first watched it, I just had like, a, oh, this is clever. Oh, I, I like this. This is interesting. I love these subversions. And she, I think, responded, 
in the platonic ideal way, which was the sure. film was torturing the family and her and making her complicit. And she was not a fan. Um, she loves the film. I think she talks about it fondly whenever, whenever we, we still talk and I bring up like, remember when I showed you funny games? But uh, there's a part of me that thinks yeah, there's a part of me that thinks she still hates me for it. But she she liked it. She loved it, and it was for her that kind of thing. Where afterwards, when she was like finished screaming at me, and I was like, "Yeah, but don't you understand? Like the way that it, she's like, no, I understand all of that. I understand all of that perfectly. I still hate you. This movie was really difficult to get through, but she could appreciate all the things that it was doing, and." I like that. I like again. I I love the fact that it's a movie that can do that, and um, yeah, that it was able to reach someone who who wasn't at my level in that way, and it, it kind of makes me wish that I could show it to more people and that more people had seen it because I think, and this is gonna sound crazy, I think that this movie could spawn like conversations, almost like The Matrix does. In terms of like, there are movies before The Matrix and after The Matrix. Like, I feel like in a more perfect world, it would be like, there are movies before Funny Games and after Funny Games. I mean, I can totally see the merit of that because I think, you know, this, it again, it draws your attention to the artifice of the story itself in a mm -hmm. way that, yeah, I think is comparable to The Matrix. Where I would argue those diverge, though, is that The Matrix 20 years later has aged pretty well like the new metal aside mostly pretty well <laughs> I was about to say. and whereas these are moved especially rewatching the first movie i think that the message of them has been done in so many different permutations now which again mm -hmm. attested the influence of this film for sure but also means that there have been people who have found easier and less dense ways to go about this. For some reason, I was thinking about the cabin in the woods a lot yes. while I was watching this Absolutely. in terms of, yeah, other meta. Well, the strangers is like my worst nightmare because it's this, <laughs> if it was an actual horror movie yeah. and home invasion is terrifying. I was going to say like when, when you say your worst nightmare it was because you found the strangers to be effective or because you hated it. No, that I and see that I love because it worked me over with a horror movie version of this premise, yes. because then I was just watching a horror movie about a thing that really scares me instead of a genre meta deconstruction that makes me mad about half the time. <laughs> well, that's funny. I saw The Strangers after I saw this. I still love The Strangers. Like, I can still have fun with those movies but i do think that funny games has made me think more about them and what i am trying to get out of them yeah and i it does ask you to kind of interrogate yourself as a person who watches movies which as far as that matrix comparison is something that is wild to a younger person mm. when you don't have that like toolbox illiteracies or whatever and I just that's where the movie gets muddy for me because it's the point it wants you to take away after doing that that I don't fully understand because I you know I watched this movie for the first time in 2007 when I was at the height of my like grindhousey like gore hunter phase and I was watching like Martyrs and Cannibal Holocaust and Serbian yep. film and all the mm -hmm. wild shit I could get my hands on. And so I was the target demographic in theory for this movie. And yet 
I, like I got what it was trying to do. And I realized even at the time that some of my aversion to it was just me being salty because it was putting me on blast. But <laughs> at, at, at the same time, you know, again, by by 97 and especially by 2007, it was drawing attention to something that a lot of other movies, horror and otherwise, were starting to interrogate. And I guess that's really more a criticism of the English language remake than the original, because in fairness, you know, I, I was eight years old in 1997, so I absolutely was not watching funny games. <laughs> but, you know... If I would have been old enough to watch it, it probably would have felt a hell of a lot more radical at the time. Because you were eight. <laughs> well, yes. And if I was able to understand funny games, I would have been like a wunderkind. So that would have been cool. <laughs> I um, It's great that you bring up Cabin in the Woods because I did want to touch on that. Like, especially because you say like other films have tried to do this. I do you, like do you think they're trying to say the same thing? Like it's, it's interesting to look at a, a film like funny games that like you said, kind of thumbs its nose at uh, indie pretensions as well as like horror pretensions. And then to see something like cabin in the woods that sort of does the same thing and still has a vaguely fourth wally kind of uh, pronunciation to it because, and I guess spoilers for cabin in the woods. Um, <laughs> Like we are to take on that, like we are the gods that are being that people are being sacrificed for, but no one ever like looks into the camera and winks at you and says like we're sure. doing this for you, buddy. And so, I'm curious if you think they're even going for basically the same thing, and which do you think is the more effective way to do it, the torturous Michael Haneke way, or the more like zany meta Drew Goddard way? I mean, the thing is, Cabin in the Woods, the, the thing I really admire about that movie more than anything is it speaks the language of low budget genre movies in order to make a point about them. And I think there's something really interesting and powerful within that. Mm. Whereas Funny Games in a lot of ways is a genre deconstruction made more or less specifically for people who don't like genre movies and can also understand why they don't like genre movies. Like it's a much, it's a much narrower vantage in some respects, I would say. Yeah. Michael, I think there's, I, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. I, I, especially in terms of when you, th I can't help but think of what Brian was saying about the matrix and funny games. And I, I think the, the thing about the matrix that, funny games doesn't have is a accessibility and an inclusivity and that's not just the the trans themes that have been uh brought into the matrix but rather a sense that uh funny games has a certain uh class and value system that i think it takes away from that i don't think is in any way aspirational like it's a uh, like the ways that you know even beginning with the most like bourgeois name that tune game <laughs> ever played like it, it's it, it's a movie that as as don was saying like it, it it it's a horror movie for people who don't like horror movies and that's down to all of the little details the ways that they the characters talk to each other before you know things really go belly up and you compare that to Cabin in the Woods, and that's another one I don't 
I don't particularly like either, but I I respect its its uh its referential um or, or I should say its wide uh toolbox of references, the ways that it does seem like they have seen a lot of the big movies of horror that and that they're gonna deploy them in the most ridiculous way possible. Granted, I think it's ultimately kind of glib and I and kind of self-defeating in the same way that I do with funny games. But I I think it's it's less a thing of, you know, Hanukkah is a torturous is trying to torture you and Godard is is just trying to take you on a wild ride. Like I I think they are a lot more close then we're giving them credit for, even if they have very different tones. Like, I, I think there is ultimately a scolding quality to both of them that is ultimately the thing that's lingered um, for me, which is probably why, as years have passed with both of these films, they've left this odd, sour, bittersweet taste for when I liked them so much when they first came out. Well, this is actually a trick question. You see, uh, Fran Kranz is in Cabin in the Woods, so that's clearly the better movie. <laughs> and you both failed, and this podcast is over. I um, What I find so interesting is that, to, to, to tie it into both Cabin in the Woods and films like it, and, and like we said, the kind of the, the Matrix and the way it makes you interrogate stories and things, it's weird that the horror genre appears to be one that is impervious to any kind of sea change following a metatextual read that would otherwise be considered like a body blow. Action movies have been a lot more changeable. I think, you know, things like The Matrix helped to push it in a bold new direction and made people realize they couldn't just keep pumping out the same kind of stuff. And then... Even something like Hot Fuzz, you know, people now are more aware of the concept of like someone angrily shooting a gun into the air. But for some reason, horror fans or just people who like horror movies in general just are like, nah, keep giving me that good stuff. They want the devices. Yeah, like the devices are what they want. So even though you have these movies that like bring up how dumb some of this stuff is, like we still go for it. Even well, you like, know, it's even no, so-called sorry. elevated horror films, like still uh, basically don't do it. I, don't do it, Brian. God damn it. But this is okay. But I'm about to say something you're going to agree with. It's insane that we call them elevated horror films because most of the time they still adhere to the fundamental horror elements that we like. And sure. just because they have like, I don't know, better camera work and more patient editing, that doesn't mean that they're not still working in that level. Sure. A jump scare is still a jump scare. Exactly. See, I told you. <laughs> well, but I think in bringing up elevated horror, because I think like we could agree that's exactly the business funny games is in, at least in a way, because if anything, this kind of, you know, predates the whole idea of elevated horror, because what he's taking to task, you know, in 1997, you know, at that point in film, horror had never been like more in widely ranging in terms of what exactly it was at that time mm -hmm. and by Wasn't 2007 scream, like 97 96 so 96. yeah if anything, sorry sorry if no. anything he was making a horror movie at a time when horror itself was turning referential and meta at the mainstream level 
which it then gets really confused because he's parodying parody movies. <laughs> but by 2007, you have the the interesting disconnect of, um, as Brian mentioned earlier, you know, the rise of torture porn. And it felt, albeit like by 2007, it was coming late to the party because the bloom was already coming off the rose of the post 9-11, like hyper violent stuff. You still had this movie that is kind of commenting on both like, it, it feels like it's remarking both on like horror movies of the time, but also just on like what it thinks horror movies are, which I think is part of my gripe with it. It's um, I had to look it up because mm. just talking about like torture porn movies and stuff like that. I recall the new funny games coming out around the time that Turistas came out, which <laughs> Turistas came out in 2006. So I was pretty much right. It came out December of 2006. So, like, I feel as though, for in my head, Teristas is, like, the bottoming out of the so-called torture porn craze. And What I, saw are we on by that point? I don't even know. I could look it up. It, um, would, it would be the fourth, if memory serves. Fourth uh, or fifth. Survey says Saw 4 was 2007. Boom. I saw the first six in theaters, if you're wondering. Oh, but Saw 3 was actually in 2006. 2006, yeah. Okay. They were coming out once a year. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, because those movies cost nothing. They turn them out in like two or three weeks. And, you know, people really wanted to watch Jaws get torn apart from each other for a couple years there. Yeah, apparently. But yeah, so I remember, because I remember I was in college and so, like, Teristas blitzed our college campus with its marketing campaign. Because the whole point of Teristas is, like, here's a bunch of college kids who go on, like, spring break and they get just decimated by a bunch of people from a Spanish-speaking country, I think. Um, and I remember seeing that and then seeing that Funny Games, the, the American remake, was coming out. And I was like, oh, thank God that but Funny Games is here to, like, slay the dragon and this shit can end. And it didn't. <laughs> It just didn't work that way. Well, then one of the really and again, I'm not I, I promise I didn't just come on here to dunk on funny games, even it's though that's like a did. good piece of the pie chart, I admit. <laughs> but one of the things that's interesting is his explicit intention for bringing it to an English speaking audience was that point that both of you have alluded to that an American audience is arguably the most in need of the film's message. And then it really did not do well at all and it that in turn to me kind of brings up the question of you know like who is the movie for if that makes sense and, right. and i've, I've never that, been able to answer that it's weird that it couldn't even trick people into it like usually <laughs> usually a movie like funny games like will be able to get like at least one good day or good weekend because people will be like oh it's like a new horror movie and i gotta go see it but like its lifetime gross was less than $1.3 million. I really wish I would have looked up the marketing, I, I, a trailer for this. I, um, I'm, I'm I remember fascinated. the trailer for this and it was, I think it was in the hall of the mountain King and okay. like just quick cuts of different parts of the movie after basically setting up like the general idea and like in, in, in between like the cuts that it would show you they would like just flash like a word in big bold red letters and it would be like <laughs> outrageous crazy i think one of them was sexy 
Were they pull quotes then? No, it was just like, these are the words that could be used to describe this movie, but not attributed what? to anyone. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I actually remember this. And Michael, like, think Gaspar Noe opening credits. Like, oh, no. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it, actually. <sighs> and um, one of the reasons that I, I brought up the concept of like, you know, there's like these movies did nothing to like undermine horror and the way that these things play out is because the so like, regardless of what you thought of us, you know, there's a point in the movie where the the tethered show up and they're like, hello, family, like we've got you. And now we're going to split you up. And we're going to spend a long time toying with you when really we should just kill you immediately. (laughs) And like a lot of people, even people who liked the movie were like, I don't understand. Like, why doesn't Red just butcher it? That's her job. Like, it's been 30 years. She should want these people dead. And this movie literally has a point where one of the guys says to the other one, like, we can't kill them now. We haven't even gotten this up to feature length yet. Yeah. Which, and they also say that at 95 minutes, which makes the joke really aggravating. (laughs) At least do that at like 50. I'm just saying. This movie is funny because like there are definitely movies that are like, if we hit 80 minutes, all right, wrap it up. It's fucking over. Um, It's especially horror movies in all honesty. But it's it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, like people were making fun of this conceit of like, let's just keep going with this because we need to pad more time like 20 years ago and we're still dealing with it. It also, and like, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say it's, it's weird to hear a joke that used to be in Mel Brooks movies applied in the most horrific context imaginable here. But then that's the that's the other thing that gets me about the movie, too, is just so, okay. if the master thesis is that like the scope of pleasure of watching someone else die is wrong. What did this 107 minute movie give us, if not the same? Well, what's interesting to me, aside from the fact that, again, it, it denies you seeing the people dying. It just shows you what happens if they if they continue to live. And what happens to the people who outlive them. What What's interesting to me is that the movie seems to take more pleasure in subverting the ways that usually people survive these movies than anything yeah. else. Like, the boy escapes and is caught. And she gets out and is caught. And she gets the gun. And then they rewind the goddamn movie. <laughs> And then she gets the knife, which we saw get knocked down into the boat earlier. And we're like, oh, that's going to be important. And then they just kind of like handily take it away from her and throw it overboard. It's it's a movie that is denying you every piece of what you could want from one of these movies to say, like, if you didn't get that, this is what's left. And what does that mean to you? And like, why are you still watching? Like, he like the fact that they continuously address the audience or I should say regularly because it's not like a running dialogue but it's almost like it constantly makes you like forces you to re-up in your desire to keep watching and to examine why the hell you are watching in the first place like are you watching to watch these people be murdered are you watching because you still think that there's going to be some kind of cathartic moment where like 
they win. It's it's so weird. It's it's such a strange movie. And the, again, the fact that it denies you all of that, you sit there kind of hollowly after it, just wondering like, yeah, why? Like, what made me want to watch this in the first place? Well, and I think the movie is very specifically asking you the question, why are you still here? It's like the Ferris Bueller post credits gag, but at feature length <laughs> and nihilistic, you know, it, yeah. it's, it, it's directly asking you to interrogate why the fuck have you not gotten up and left the movie, which I find disingenuous and aggravating, but is also, that is only one reading of that too. Well, it's interesting to me because the movie is asking that. But I don't think it ever actually wants you to leave the movie. I think it just wants you to think about that. But that is a question that cannot be asked in a way that doesn't sound accusatory. Guys, I'm just realizing that this... Uh, one, that this movie's a lot like The Vanishing from 1988, mm -hmm. except that it's not self-reflexive. And the other thing I'm realizing is that I think I would like this movie if it ended after they killed the kid and then it spent 30 to 40 minutes just with, with them trying to find help and maybe finding it, but having to deal with the trauma and guilt of their son dying in this horrific accident. So I, I have a pitch for you. How would you feel about a movie that like is exactly the same up until the son dies? And even like at the point when she's like standing up and turns off the TV and then it cuts to like a year later and they're still like deep in intensive therapy and you just sit in a live, like, you know, not single shot, but like real time therapy session, just going through what they've had to deal with so far. I wouldn't want that because that actually also denies me what I want. I mean, I think if they really wanted to make something, the hardest part of this film for me is directly after that death. Like the like where she is trying to turn off the NASCAR, like I, that stuff works for me. Like that's the stuff that you know, even though it's paced at the same rate as you know uh, Jean Dielman, like it's <laughs> it 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 works, and and it I, I think it does say something about um, you know living with trauma, and even if it is like pretentious and needing to do it in in like this provocateur way, like isn't super helpful. I, I think that that is the one part of this film that does feel unique and does feel like maybe they're provoking something beyond. I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just a sicko, but I just didn't really care that much that I was being forced to watch these people be butchered. Like it, it's just, it was very weird realizing how numb I was during any of the actual home invasion and violence scenes of this of this film and 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 it, something i'm apparently still wrestling with because i don't I, I don't have any summation to take from that but i do nonetheless think that i would like this movie if it was entirely about here's what actually happens to the horror survivors you know when someone dies or when you lose your leg or when you're, you know, sexually, uh, sexually harassed or, or sorry, sexually assaulted uh, in a home invasion, like those are all subjects that are kind of 
that are sometimes forgotten, the direct aftermath. Like, death is almost... Death isn't too easy, but it's it, it it's much quicker. It, it's it's a cop out, in a way, and and maybe that's what ultimately feels so cheap about the way this movie ends, even as it needs to return to the games. Well, and I feel like if the movie if the movie cared about any of that, I would be a lot more engaged with it. But I'm left. I'm left with the consistent impression that, you know, the thought exercise is the thing. The humanity sure. or the lack of it is secondary, you know? There was a movie that came out, I think, last year, and I can't recall the title of it, but I feel like someone wrote an article online that was like, X is the first movie to deal with, like, the fallout of the violence in a horror movie. And everyone got pissed oh. off because they're like, that happens in a lot of these. Oh, no, that was Happy Death Day to me. Oh, that's right. This yeah. Year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yes, I do recall that. Yeah, because they're like, it's the first one that like really like drills into like what it's like to survive one of these movies. And people sure. are like, have you forgotten about all of the Scream sequels? <laughs> what about all of the Halloween sure. sequels? Like, what about literally Texas every Chainsaw other Massacre. movie? Yeah. Like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Brian, what do you what do you say to those? Uh, do you think that Hanukkah cares about the humanity, uh, or do you think he does just see this as a thought exercise? I think he does just see it as a thought exercise. I think that he has created these people to suffer. I think that it 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 would always be interesting to do a remake of this movie that like directly addresses the fact that it is a movie that needs to get made. And that someone had to think it up and write it and shoot it and then like go to bat for it in all ways necessary as a director, because it's, it's, he's clearly like got a thing about our desire to consume something like this, but like he still had to make it. He had to put these people through this. And I wonder what he would say to that idea. Like, you could have not made this movie. Like, <laughs> there's clearly the people who consume something and make it economically feasible to do it and acceptable to do it are, like, partially to blame. But, like, if no one ever produced heroin again, then, like, people wouldn't be addicted to heroin, you know? Like... There's a I mean, level... for a few weeks, people were <laughs> right, well, yeah, very you know, addicted to heroin still. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, it's like it, people are pissed off at pharmaceutical companies for like pushing like opioid painkillers. Like, shouldn't we also be pissed off at directors and studios for pushing these horror movies? Like, if you're going to moralize, why are you kicking the end user when a shit ton of work has to go into creating the thing anyway? So... I think I think he is. He's kind of like going for the the end user, and I think that he does it well. And I think that, you know, I just I I there's a part of me that wonders, like, did I get pleasure out of watching this again, or am I just remembering how good it felt to see it for the first time? And you know, am I just so wrapped up in my admiration for its construction and creation at all that i let that kind of supersede the fact that like maybe it is boring like maybe he is indulging you know his his art house languidness a little too much 
but there's still something like when when she goes to look for the dog i still felt a little twinge when he turns and winks and like when i have to watch her going through everything and when the dog tumbles out of there like so even even that kind of like single shot one take like languidness just it still makes sense to me it still it still feels right i'm still getting a kick out of that well and i feel like one of the great ironies of funny games is that there's actually some really really great horror movie craft in this right Mm -hmm. like i think in particular of like the wave of dread that came over me when um i believe it's paul tells the kid that he has to like drop the hammer on the gun in order to fire it. Just little beats like that, that in the context of a normal horror movie would be absolutely bone chilling and still are here, but less so because the movie again is making you hyper aware of that. That's like, that's the thing. It's, it's like, it's kind of like watching porn that's explaining the mechanics of itself to you at all times. (laughs) It's telling you what a horror movie is as you're watching a horror movie, which takes at least some of the fear out of it. I am now trying to, I am now trying to imagine what that kind of pornography would be like. And um, it would not be fun for anybody. (laughs) No, it wouldn't. I, I, there was a part of me that almost thought like, would it be like pornography, but then it would have like a very droning, like seventh grade biology teacher talking over it. So what's his name from uh, Ferris, Ferris Bueller? Bueller's Day Off? Yeah. <laughs> Stein? Ben Stein. Yeah. Ben Stein. Yeah. Oh my. Are people well, still trying to win his money? I don't know. <laughs> I don't believe anyone's on cable trying to win his money at this time now. Okay. Speaking of an, another piece of craft that I, I really like, I mean, we kind of already spoke about it, but just the way that the the whole situation with the eggs uh, just continues to escalate and then cuts to uh, to the kid and his father on the boat. Sorry. Uh, to, uh, yeah, the kid and his father on the boat. Um, and the dog, like just the way that the dog barking, you know it's going to stop. And it, it goes on for a really long time. I mean, we could say a lot about I guess we kind of have already incidentally said a lot about the patience in this, you know, sometimes we call it languid, sometimes we call it ratcheting up the tension, but either way, like the ways that he uh, makes us wait for those things we've been conditioned to hear that have nothing to do with violence, but just the, the prelude to the violence, I, I think is stuff that's, that's really, that's really impressive like speaking to what Dom was saying. And you really can't undersell the work that the actors are doing. No, just, uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to them very quickly because we've, we've talked a lot about Hanukkah, but he can't do it alone. (laughs) He had to conscript some people. Um, Ulrich, uh, does anyone know how to pronounce his last name? Muhe? uh y- yes sure I don't, know, I don't know what to do with an umlaut i'm irish okay we don't well, okay like that. sandra it's sandra hewler is the lead of tony erdman and she has an ulamat over the u so is it ulrich uh muhe yeah, i i'm i'm trying dom you want to give this a crack <laughs> I feel like I'm winning by not playing. So it's by a good all point. means, 
You took the lesson of funny games. You did it. Um, he was he was great in the lives of others, and um, he was fantastic in this. And you know, obviously, most of the film is resting on uh, Suzanne Lothar, who plays his uh, his wife Anna. Did you know they were married in real life? I did not. Yep. <laughs> well, that's horrifying. They married in 1997. <laughs> oh my god! So this was their honeymoon. <laughs> oh, so Funny Games is a meet cute. Cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! And then, um, in the American version, you've got uh, Tim Roth and Naomi Watts. Yes. And one of the other things that kind of struck me was just talking about like the fact that, you know, he remade this. And I remember thinking of this when I first saw them, but like the house is like exactly the same. <laughs> like there's like a fresh coat of paint on it. But other than that, it's pretty much exactly the same. Like the boat is exactly the same. And even like Brady Corbet has like the same pretty dumb haircut <laughs> that Peter has in the original film. And the children actors legitimately could be brothers it's just like the level of it like you know because because let's look at another shot for shot remake psycho like vince vaughn does not look like the original norman bates sure but hanneke like really went out of his way to make everything as close to the same as possible different cinematographer though i, I do notice that it's darius kanji for the remake and jurgen uh Jurgis for the original yes and yet again aesthetically very similar well i had read that i know at least in the case of the house it was built off the original blueprints from the 1997 film so that kind of like total spatial connection is not mm -hmm. an accident at all it's just like it's so weird like he didn't even think I just I'd, I'd love to talk to him just to be like you didn't even want to like update the house a little bit like the layout of the house was so fine-tuned perfect that like you couldn't you couldn't do anything <laughs> you want to talk about the paint job in funny games that's what you do if you talk to Hanukkah <laughs> I'm sure I'd have a couple other questions <laughs> well Dom as I'm curious to you did you have any other observations that you think like solely came from watching them back to back i i, I mean i i know you already you already stated your displeasure with both versions but do you think that do you she, seem a purpose <laughs> to do so which one no, do you like I, more <laughs> So weirdly, I, I can actually answer that. I do like the 1997 version more, but I also it's weird because I think it hits better because I don't put it in this context of, you know, going after a kind of horror film that was kind of irrelevant by its own time. The point I made earlier, mm -hmm. the one thing that I did find very, very interesting about rewatching both of these movies and especially the um, American version, because I watched them chronologically back to back was, you know, especially with the way that Michael Pitt and Brady Corbett, you know, physicalize those characters. There's something extremely alt-right about them that you only get out of the very particular English language context 
that, you know, obviously was not deliberate at the time because it was, you know, nine years before Nazis came back. But well, I think it's like two floppy haired blonde guys wearing polo shirts, you know, it's like. Yeah, and I think that's universal, but I think in English in particular, there's this kind of like smug, dead-eyed, yacht rock yuppie thing that they have going on that is really frightening to me. And one thing that really popped out to this movie and to me with these movies in general was just they are built around the existential horror of someone telling you, we're going to demean you and you will obey. And every time that you do anything less than completely and unyieldingly obey, the punishment will increase. It's such a simple notion and it's really goddamn scary to me at the same time. You know, what's, what's crazy is that now that you've brought up like the alt right thing, I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I, I agree with the alt right thing, but I think what fills me with even more dread is that like, beyond the alt-right thing like bigger than the alt-right thing is these guys are very much like internet trolls they're like because they come in and they're like hey can i borrow some eggs yeah and you're like yeah yeah totally you can have some eggs like do you want to have them it's like oh it's cool just whatever you want to do like if you just want to give them to me i could do that and then you drop the eggs and they're like oh silly me i dropped the eggs you're like that's it's fine i can clean that up it's kind of annoying that you drop my eggs but it's fine i'll, I'll clean it up and it's like <laughs> okay well you just give me some more eggs, I'll go. It's like, what are you talking about? I gave you eggs and you dropped them. It's like, yeah, but you've got 12 of them. Just give me four more eggs and I'll be out of here. Come on, just be a, be a pal. It's the same thing of like someone who just like strolls into your Twitter and is like, so we all agree that like white people are the best, right? And you're like, no, <laughs> white people aren't the best. Like it, humanity is a spectrum of people. And, and they're just like, I don't know what you're freaking out. I'm just bringing up a conversational topic. It's like. How do you yeah. respond logically to someone who is being so illogical, but so fucking calm at the same time? And their entire yeah. purpose is to bait you into reacting to them so that they can justify their violence towards you. So I had a very much a similar line of thought, and I want to expand on that by also saying, you know, if like troll logic is basically the intellectual equivalent of going, yeah, yeah, I'm not touching you to somebody and waving your hands around them, <laughs> yeah, which it basically is. Yourself. Yeah, exactly. It, it It's the discursive version to stop hitting yourself. And the problem is this movie asks you to treat like a version of that that is unstoppable as it, and take that to its logical ends. And that was one thing I found really disturbing was, again, just like this way that these people are being like less even manipulated than conditioned in this really creepy way. Like they're being taught, you know, don't say no to the eggs or it'll get worse. By the end of the movie, it's even, you know, follow them into the boat or God knows, like they slowly breed the flight response out of them, whether by, you know, killing them or just by instilling that sense of fear. Because the one thing that did get me in that endless single take is how slow they are to get moving, how yeah. they're watching themselves, how they won't even get back into driving the action for several minutes because they're so scared of what could happen by just, you know, making a single movement that hasn't been approved by these two lunatics. Right. It's like when it's like you see it all the time in movies and stuff, or you even hear about it when like people get mugged or, or assaulted. And then the person is like, all right, now count to a hundred. 
and then you do it because even though you know they're taking that time to run away you're still like nervous like what if i get to 75 and i stop and they're still there <laughs> like what if or what if like they can still hear me like something is gonna happen like i just need to do this because spiritually and existentially i have made a contract with this person who holds my life in their hand and i have to follow through god now that you've brought up the the alt-right online troll thing like that's all i want to talk about like that i'm literally shocked that no one i don't know on slate for instance has written like <laughs> what these two 20 you know two and 12 year old movies tell us about trump's america and you just, just put that in the world brian it's gonna happen <laughs> tomorrow I mean, someone honestly... on slate it's gonna write that up <laughs> They you play golf, Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> who owns that? <laughs> she she has stakes that have dethrosted and oh, she's gotta okay. use it. Trump had stakes. <laughs> I could do this. NASCAR's on TV. Though again, that's a pointed thing that he put in there on purpose, but everyone's white. I don't know. No, I do think like if nothing else, it's also a movie that is built around the terror of negotiating in bad faith, you know, which is another very like trolly and alt righty concept, like yeah. getting into a dispute with someone who is there, like you are there to break them back down to a point of rationalism. They are there to break you down as far as they can possibly take you Therein, They're always going to win. And that's, like the sense of fear the movie preys upon at least at points right because you like these guys don't care about anything they kill her early because even though they've won and they could keep her alive for another 50 minutes they're just like yeah we're done it's easier to sail without her like eh, who gives a shit anymore so it is it is that kind of thing where like they don't value anything not even the the rules or the constrictions that they've set up for themselves all that matters is that they've gotten one over on these people and that's that's pretty much like that's 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 what these people online do oh my god <laughs> fuck why didn't we bring this up immediately <laughs> I would say the, the one thing that Peter doesn't like is being called fatty. So that that is something that he values. You, yeah, I mean, it was about, but that's again, that's that kind of like, you know, the, the worst thing that you can like say to some of these like online all right people is like trying to belittle their manhood or like make sure. them appear weak in any way. That's why they call everyone a cuck. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say one of the things that really scared me into your exact point, Michael, is you know, I, I'm very interested, especially in what you two make of like, whether you think that that's actually something that upsets him, or if the idea that he has a vulnerability of some kind and is the lesser of the two and like the more easy to manipulate or something, because you see, especially, um, Anna appeal to him at one point yeah, exactly. as though he might be the more sympathetic of the two. He's like, Oh, I've got to clean up this carpet. And she's like, look, listen to me. Like everything. No, I think every little, literally exactly. everything they do is just another way to fuck with the family and by extension the viewer yeah i i feel like it's very much one of those you know like origin of the joker type of things where <laughs> you they get even a different story every time yeah he he says like what is it peter i think no paul 
Paul says of Peter, like, oh, you know, his mom was overbearing and he has sex with her and he lives in like a degenerate house. And then he's like, no, actually, everything's fine. Like that scene is bizarre. Like I was actually just going to mention that scene because that scene goes on and on and the story that he spins. But then like when he's just like, you know, he's just a little spoiled shit who didn't get enough uh, love. And now he's a. I know he's a queer or something. I, it's something along those lines. As in, like, I, as as Don was just saying, the worst thing you can do is criticize his masculinity. Like yeah. that 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 is the stuff. Like going back to my old conflicted feel with this film. Like that's the stuff I find a lot more interesting than the more stock kind of home invasion prodding. Like it, it's those parts where i don't feel like like i feel like we're going outside the schematic of this thought exercise and you know grace notes are emerging especially as it's applied you know now now that we've brought it up i'm going to run this into the ground as it's applied to like people online (laughs) and the alt-right it's this concept of like the the endless new york times articles and, and mother jones articles about like oh what are like what are turning these young men into these people and it's like, sure, there are like things in their lives that could warp them or turn them in this way or make them feel like it's the only option they have. But you can't underestimate the like just draw of feeling power over another human being. And they will just lie in order to to just get the laughs, you know? They they do it for the lulls, as the kids say. And it's Ugh. it's <laughs> It's just one of those, it, it, it is a part of this movie that is so annoying because like, even after they've broken this man's knee, they're still trying to be reasonable. Sure. <laughs> they're still like, but it's very clear that there's no getting out of this. And they're like, oh, like, you know, he hit him first. Like, oh, so I had to like, oh, I, I'm a doctor. I can help like here. Let me help. It's just, it's this. But then apologizing for being too familiar at the yeah. same time. It's so it's so weird. And it's it's one of those things that when I first saw the movie, I was like, they've just trying to create the most sociopathic, unhelpful, helpful people on earth. Like who would ever act this way? And yet, you know, God bless you, Dom. <laughs> The answer is right in front of us. Michael Haneke <laughs> protected pr- predicted Twitter trolls fucking 20 years ago well because honestly i also again going with this kind of being my operative read and i think as much as anything it's because i like if i was gonna rewatch this whole movie especially twice over i wanted to like bring something new to the table with it other than (laughs) i still hate this but i i i am very interested in the idea of it playing out you know like the vestiges of politeness as this assumptively comforting thing because you know we especially in the way that we like privilege being able to speak a certain way with a certain diction to the way we like especially in some higher society settings you're expected to like maintain the strictures of high society no matter what's happening in front of you this movie plays out a really perverse version then of the worst things in the world are happening in front of you. To what extent do you as a knee jerk reaction still feel obligated to play along? Yeah, exactly. Like she waits so long to try to force these people out of her house. (laughs) And, you know, even as this stuff is happening, she lets one of them go use the golf club. 
um, on her dog. Not that she knows that that's what's going to happen. It's and and the husband is like, you know, I can't be an arbitrator between like a situation that I don't understand. So like, can you please just go? Like, just I don't know what to do right now. But he's also kind of an asshole. Like, <laughs> like I I don't think that should go unheard. That like he should just immediately side with his wife in this moment, and he seems to kind of. I, I don't know. I, I feel like his behavior in that is very much kind of going with some of our reads about emasculation and like cowardice. Like, I, like even, you know, even when you go directly to the scene where they make her undress, like I, even the way that he just looks down the whole time, like he, he just doesn't say a word. I mean, and in part because what can he possibly say in that moment? But also it, it does seem... Uh, it it does seem to be a, a reflection of, you know, um, holy shit! Of course, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> emasculation. <laughs> well, I think there's something really interesting too in the way that, <sighs> like, you know, the husband's whole. So if we're going to draw an alt-right analogy in macro for funny games, the husband's whole, well, I can't arbitrate a situation in which I'm not directly involved, is the both sides guy who's the first to bite it before the fascists win. I don't know. I'm no, pursuing a line of logic. No, I think you're probably right, and I think Brian is completely on board <laughs> with it. Yeah, he's the centrist. He's... <laughs> You know, because mm-hmm. obviously, like, he's not supporting his wife, so she's not happy with him. And these guys are going to beat the shit out of him with a golf club. But also, he thinks he's somehow taking a moral high ground by simultaneously ignoring his wife and, you know, trying to, again, be the arbitrator. Because I think there are so, a few notes So in this she's movie. Hillary Rodham Clinton. She's oh, my God. <laughs> he is Beto O'Rourke. And they are the alt-right. Where's Bernie? Is Bernie the kid? Bernie's the dog. (laughs) And the kid is the future of America. AOC. (laughs) AOC is the eggs. Oh my god. (laughs) Here's the thing. I'm never going to release this podcast. I'm going to claim that I came up with all this on my own. And I'm going to pitch it to Slate tomorrow. (laughs) If I can't get Slate, I'll go to Salon.com. Congratulations on your... (laughs) It might be. I have no idea. Congratulations on your freelance dollars whenever they (laughs) arrive. It's gonna be great. So, you know, apropos of nothing, but since I was never gonna have a good segue into this, you know... Um, I did find a piece that Haneke, because he apparently imagined this originally as a short form piece, which, you know, there's a whole other conversation about how this might have worked better in that format that I'm not going to pursue because that's not the thing. But he wrote something called Violence in the Media in uh, typically subtle fashion. Oh, no. What's that about? (laughs) I do. It's an academic piece that was in a collection of writings about him. I can't source a time period, so I will give that piece a disclosure. But I will read off just a little bit of this because I think it really speaks to what he's getting at with this in particular. So, quote, 
the topic of violence in the media is typically brought up with the goal of placing a guilty party under arrest. That's the first line of this. Love it. Depending on the conviction of the debaters, either the media or that objective mirror society reflecting nothing but reality itself, or the permanent presence of violence in the media is what really bears responsibility for the increasing violence in our daily interactions with each other. On the hunt for a scapegoat, this form of discourse quickly turns into a fundamental chicken or egg question. The inconclusiveness of this inquiry is productive for both discursive positions. Both are right. The end of that even makes me mad. And, <laughs> but I also think it kind of drives overall at what he's getting at with funny games, where he's not interested in a binary answer between, you know, what do we make of these boys? What do we make in our interpretation of them? It is provocation for the sake of provocation. And I will not say that it doesn't have this place. I just reserve the right to be mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, an, you, that's actually a very mentally healthy thing to say. It's like, look, it's provocation for the provocation. It might have its place, but I am allowed to be mad at it. Tom, you use the words big mad in a in a messaging. And I just want you to be able to repeat <laughs> that because I love it. <laughs> no, Hanukkah left me big mad and I will put that on the record. <laughs> He left me little mad and I don't know, big admiring. <laughs> I, can't, I can't follow this same tactical garden path. Big bored. <laughs> yeah, that's but the, again. I, yeah. I understand like, the concept of being bored with a movie like this, you know, especially as we keep saying, it's very deliberate, deliberately paced. If you know where it's going, some of the tension has been drained from it. But like I said, I still found it deeply uncomfortable to watch and now that we know that it's about the alt-right and internet trolls and uh i don't know the dsa or whatever then <laughs> now i understand why because the entire time i was watching this i was feeling the the whole of society happening all at once and i guess them lazily tipping her into the the water at the end is the uh 2016 election well, and I think there's something really scary, too, in the idea that, you know, you watch the entire triptych play out. You see them standing with the neighbor off in the far distance at the very beginning in both versions. Mm -hmm. You watch their entire horrifying debacle, and then you watch them walk into the house of the next. You watch their progression from start to end to sustain at every step. Which makes it all the more revolting because what's implied by what came before and what will follow is all the more terrifying for what you have seen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd actually yeah. forgotten about the um, I'd forgotten about the way that he kind of sets that up. These like overlapping first introductions. Oh, yeah. And assumedly, you know, especially when the kid runs to the neighbor's house and finds everyone dead, that was the yard at the beginning. That's always been my understanding of it. Yes, anyway. that is what I believe sure. as well. That's yeah, that's what I thought. So, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's the, the most interesting part to me about this movie is it only really can can function as an allegory like. Otherwise, over the course of like 
seven days, literally everyone on this lake will be dead. And at some point they're going to run out of stuff. And like they, they claim to be hungry, but you never see them seeming to need any kind of actual biological anything like well peter eats repeatedly that's oh well, yeah because he's fatty um <laughs> wow i didn't say it <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> homicidal psychopath peter you see now you're the centrist because you're like don't lower yourself to their level don't call them names oh i was saying don't fetch him fictional characters but i'm sure that too look you, you can punch a nazi <laughs> you can fetch him a fictional <laughs> avatar for the old psychopath uh michael's a centrist michael is the uh tim roth slash i'm not going to try to pronounce his name again do, do, do i need to say end this again <laughs> this has just become my catchphrase at the uh, towards the end of episodes whatever my... it seems like we've fully gone off the rail <laughs> but we haven't like it's just i like i i've made my jokes but i am really actually like very interested in the fact that like when i watched this all the first times that I watched it, the concept of someone acting in the way that these young men do seemed like it could only happen in a movie. And like their, their calmness and their, their desire to maintain some level of civility was like incredibly impossible to believe for me in a way that made them seem like some sort of demon. And it's just like crazy that now, like, it's such a normal thing to me that I didn't even think to apply it to like the alt right or the way that like people act online when they're when they're being an asshole. It's it's so weird to me that this movie, for all of our joking, like, really did kind of call that. Like, was that? I don't, you know, I don't know how much you guys remember of of 1997. Um, but like, was that a thing back then? Like, did we have that kind of person in culture? Because I feel like that's such a well-known thing. They have, what is it? It's called like walrusing. I've never yeah, heard. I mean, I, I, I can't testify entirely because I was mostly very about Pokemon cards at that moment in time. That's true. That but was the age of Pokemon. It was. And, uh, and you know, I, I had a formidable binder, but neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> I do think, though, that Binders like. Binders full of Pokemon. bringing it back no i i lost my point here i'm sorry binders full of pokemon got me (laughs) no like i i'm the same unfortunately like i can i can try to think back to them but again i was you know walking around with a game boy in my pocket um so it's hard six years old (laughs) (laughs) i was in 97 i was 10 so it's hard for me to know, but it it's, it's so, it's so, it, it really is like uncanny how this movie is like, we're going to make the most terrifying sociopathic force known to man. And it's going to be an extremely knowing meta pop culture citing person who knows all the twists and turns and can anticipate them. And will use that against you as another form of torture. And now that is a legitimate thing that people point out as being the reason that we are politically and socially in the situation that we're in. Well, and I think there's something really interesting, too, in building a horror movie around a pair of polite, clean cut, you know, young white dudes. Not to, like, put too fine a point on it, but I think the movie is very much drawing attention to, like, 
the way in which we presume certain figures to be evil and the way subsequently in which we presume certain figures to be good. And to polite, clean-cut young men, especially young white men, is the assumption, at least in America and in like most Anglo societies, of good. See, I find and that interesting because usually in movies, they're evil as shit. Like, especially with that haircut and the way that they're acting. Like, I feel like that level of pompous knowing aristocracy is usually a shorthand for this person is up to no good. And until five years ago or so, I would say, yes, absolutely. But here we are. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> oh, man movie it is it, now it is it this is legitimately something that i'm interested about and maybe we'll write about and not in a non-slate capacity <laughs> just because that is such a strange thing to think about how like this movie in in warning about one thing and amping it up to 11 and and viewing the kind of like pop culture obsession with with this kind of film like created a, a a veritable like tapestry onto which to paint our current society. And that is at once saying something about the level of thought that went into this, but also saying something about like just the way that things have evolved and the staying power of the artistry of this film. I'm surprised that the second that Dom said this, everyone doesn't like, Oh my God, immediate 10 out of 10. Like I've forgiven this movie for every other thing that I didn't like about it. Hey. blowing my <laughs> oh, no, goddamn listen. mind we've we've had a we've had a great conversation and i'm grateful for being a part of it but like again don't make me like the movie and that's the beauty of it <laughs> that again that is 100 you're right all right so i think i have a, a slate article to write i lied i'm definitely pitching it to slate <laughs> um do, do we have any other thoughts on this movie before we wrap up I don't like this movie, and I think everyone should be forced to watch it in film school. End of list. All right. Yeah, I mean, th this movie has to get shown in, in film school. Like, in fact, so remember the friend that I told you about, the, the girl who punched me? Um, <laughs> we had made plans to watch this movie. She was in, like, a Film 101 introduction to film or the art of cinema class, and the teacher was like standing up at the front of this class of 200 kids and was like, so there's a movie called funny games and you know, I'm going to ruin it right now. And she legitimately stood up in the middle of this class of 200 people and was like, Oh, Oh, my friend is showing that to me. Like in two days, like, can I leave the class so that I don't hear anything about it? And he's like, no, but you can plug your ears a hum and close your eyes if you want. And she did it. That was her that was her commitment to seeing this movie. But um yeah, it's this this movie. I is... hope she dug it, and I mean that in earnest. <laughs> she did. She did. We still like I said, we still talk about I don't know, the act of viewing it. I'm still not sure that she would say she <laughs> likes it, but she appreciated the shit out of what it did. <sighs> Michael Snydell, was that sigh your final thoughts? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Would you still yeah. agree that like people should watch it just to have an opinion on it? Or do you think that like there's a better version of this that they should check out instead? I think there probably is, but I, I don't know that I've seen it. I, I, I just, I guess what I want is I want 
and I, I want people to go into this. I'm hoping that they don't go into it the way that we talked about our first viewing, which is in the sense that we felt like we could decode the universe. And, and we're like, <laughs> you know, seeing certain scenes mean like, mm-hmm, I understand it. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I, I don't want this to be something that will instill some type of superiority. And I think if the if there is self-awareness uh, while watching this uh, about what it can do and what you can do with the with, you know, breaking the fourth wall and playing with thought exercises in nonlinear ways, then, well, no, it's definitely linear <laughs> linear <laughs> ways, then, you know, then yes, then it's a, a worthwhile thing. I would have to agree. I really don't want this to become like the new fight club where people see it and then think that they're really smart and then misread it and then misappropriate it. Um, but I think this is a movie that like, if you are serious about film, you kind of got to see it. I mean, a lot that can be said for a lot of Michael Haneke's films, but this is a film against which to measure your like knowledge and understanding of films and to see, like I said, like a hallmark, a touchstone, of uh of of cinema in and the way that it's evolved and the way that people look at it i mean i'm trying to think does does anyone know off the top of their head what their favorite michael haneke film is i've only seen one other one so <laughs> so you liked that one more a cachet yes cachet is a brilliant say, film and i'll say here like i i really liked uh white ribbon a lot like i not sure it's a movie I would ever sit through again, especially in a non-theatrical setting. But, you know, his stuff, like, again, in the way it draws your attention directly to the way he's pacing it. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting, even if I don't always like it. I have, like, I swing wildly on my, on which of my films is his favorite. I love Cachet. Um, Amour is great and devastating and I'll never watch it again. White so ribbon that is, is not the same as the Green Book follow follow up. That's amore, right? Correct. Amore. <laughs> That's amore is not the 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 American remake of amore that we okay. know. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to. What is his name? Valalongo. Valalongo could be pulling some. The, the internet could not handle that. <laughs> if 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 Valalongo was like. Hey, my next movie's gonna be a remake of Amore called That's Amore. Yeah, we'd all die of happiness. Um, <laughs> I sometimes I sometimes I I throw a curveball and I say that Time of the Wolf is my favorite of his because I think it's one of the few ones that has like an openly optimistic ending. And if you have, well, obviously Michael hasn't seen Time of the Wolf, but like if you haven't, haven't. seen it. People should watch Time of the Wolf. All right. I legitimately don't know if you can. I don't know where you could find it. You might have to just buy a used version off of Amazon or something. Yeah, apparently you can buy one used on Amazon. There's only one left in stock. I feel (laughs) like the one, if I should see any, I should see... I should see the piano teacher because I love Isabel Huppert. So I probably should see that. <laughs> yeah. Please do. And let me know what you think. <laughs> Great. That Another one you can stream episode. on Amazon. Oh, can I? No oh, disc wonderful. necessary. You will have to pay for it though. <laughs> 
you know, pay for it in other ways. Psychologically. Right. Yes. Anyway, so those are our thoughts on the <laughs> funny games. Uh, if you have any thoughts or opinions on them, reach out at Film Stage Show, uh, the Film Stage Show on Facebook. Of course, you can email us podcast filmstage.com. Thank you so much for talking with us no thank you so much for listening to us ladies and gentlemen as always we can be found on patreon.com slash the film stage show go there give us your money and of course we are brought to you by movie for your free 30-day trial go to mubi.com dom thank you for enduring michael and i's company in order to talk about this movie that you do not like but have some feelings about between the two versions, I have watched this movie accumulative like four or five times now. So uh, thanks. But, I have, but, I've but seen this movie a weird for... amount of times, too. Like, as I was watching it, I was like, this might be the seventh time I've seen a version of this movie. Jesus H. What is wrong with both of me? <laughs> <laughs> you forget. I made people watch it. Okay. I mean, I mean, look, I saw Annie Christ on a date once. I don't have a leg to stand on here. Um, that's so actually I. true. Yeah, but me too. um, yeah. Otherwise, thank you guys for having me on. And if I can do a quick <laughs> cheap plug, you can uh, find all my stuff at Consequences Sound. I love that you're like, other than making me watch this movie that we just spent almost two hours talking about. Thanks for having me on. All right. <sighs> So that is where to find Dom online. That is Consequence of Sound. Michael Snydell, where can people find you online between now and the next time? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell. And uh, by the time this up, my review of Ash is the Purest White uh, should be up at uh, The Spool, which is actually uh, Consequence of Sound's uh, Clint Worthington's new outlet so uh, I wrote about that film for him, and we're also going to be uh, doing a podcast about that this weekend. So, yeah, exciting. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Jerome. Really, you can find me everywhere at that. I'm not. I'm not listing off the places. My throat <laughs> hurts. I'm really tired. Um, of course, written reviews thefilmstage.com, BrianJerome.com, and, uh, and slates. As and soon to be a featured <laughs> culture writer on Slate. Look for me at Browbeat and as a special guest on their Culture Gab podcast. Ugh, yeah. Hashtag Slate Pitch. Um, that's it. Uh, as Michael said, next week we'll be talking about Ash is the Purest White. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next time. With nothing to say Besides some comment on the weather Well in case you fail to notice In case you fail to see I was really hoping I could time that up so I could actually hear her saying these foolish games <laughs> <laughs>